Welcome back to Breast Cancer Update. The last faculty person I interviewed was Dr. Hope Rugo. During the ASBS panel discussion, she presented a young woman with locally advanced HER2-positive disease, but she also prepared two other cases, first to demonstrate the issue of delayed use of an aromatase inhibitor after tamoxifen, and the second, a case in which adjuvant trastuzumab was utilized. I decided to spend our interview time discussing these two cases, and Dr. Rugo began by describing a 61-year-old woman who had received five years of adjuvant tamoxifen, had therapy discontinued, and was still being followed when Dr. Rugo decided to consider delayed endocrine therapy. She is Ashkenazi Jewish, and most of her previous relatives died in the Holocaust, and she's married. Her husband was a pharmacist who had retired. He's a little bit older than she was. She was a homemaker. She has one daughter who's an OBGYN who is in practice and a son who lives locally. How'd she do in the five years of tamoxifen? She did very well. No problems? No. So she gets out to five years. The tamoxifen is stopped. She's doing great. And then she comes back just for a routine follow-up. And what, you bring up the issue of starting an AI? Right. At that point, she's a node-positive patient who's six and a half years out from her diagnosis, still has about 50% of her recurrence risk ahead of her, and is postmenopausal. And so it's absolutely clear that hormonal therapy at that time might provide additional benefit. Now, one of the key questions that comes up in this situation is how far out can they be for you to consider this? So she was a year and a half out. Suppose she'd been three or four years out. Well, I think, you know, the data obviously has changed from when we started and when that patient started the aromatase inhibitor because we understood more and do understand now in the 2000s more about the natural history of hormone receptor positive breast cancer than you understand that if about 50% of recurrence occurs after five years, then there's still a substantial residual risk. So in those patients, the residual risk isn't going to be that much decreased by one or two years. So that was an easy decision then. Now we have the data where women who when the unblinding of MA17 occurred and women allocated themselves to take letrozole and did very well compared to the women who did not, suggesting that if you start hormone therapy even eight years after diagnosis that you may impact patients so that for some patients who wouldn't take tamoxifen early on, you could still start an aromatase inhibitor if they had higher risk disease at a later time. Was this woman surprised when you brought up the issue of starting hormone therapy when she's been doing great for the last six or seven years? Yes, I think, you know, women really want to believe that five years is a magic time period because it has been touted as such and certainly has more impact in hormone receptor negative disease, but they don't want to hear that they still have 50% of their recurrence risk and in truth, more than 50% of their risk of dying ahead of them. So it is a difficult conversation, but I think when people understand this, and I often use graphics to explain it to women in terms of the data from the Early Breast Cancer Trialist Group and others that are available on the web, so you can show graphic data to women, that they're very interested in additional therapies to reduce risk. And of course, Peter Radden's Adjuvant Online has a model that attempts to factor this in, although there's so many factors, it's really kind of difficult. One of the things that really surprised me when the people started talking about this is the actual risk that you're talking about after five years. And the number that I've kind of heard thrown around, I think roughly this is what Peter uses, is that women who are originally node positive 
have a recurrence rate roughly in the range of 4% a year and no negative 2% a year, which, you know, you multiply times five years, although I guess you got to not quite exactly multiply. I mean, that's a pretty substantial risk. It is. And I have a patient who I had a big conversation with about extended hormonal therapy, and it was a woman who had a 1.8-centimeter intermediate-grade node-negative tumor who got CMF, went into menopause in her mid-30s, and then took five years of tamoxifen, and she reached her five-year point. We had a big conversation. I said, there's data out there. You could take an aromatase inhibitor. You're menopause. And she said, you know, I really don't want to. I had a stage one tumor. I really don't feel that that's worthwhile. And of course, you know, eight years later, she had metastatic disease to bone. So, you know, you can't treat patients based on your rule of one. But I think that if you could tolerate some duration of aromatase inhibitor therapy, and I, without the concrete data, which we'll never have, I actually tailor the duration of the aromatase inhibitor therapy to the extent of risk. And I think that's quite reasonable. So, you know, you say, okay, you had, you know, no negative disease, but an aromatase inhibitor adds to tamoxifen in every single trial that's available. So here you are. Why don't we give you two or three years of an AI? Let's see how you do with that. But if you have higher risk disease, five years, and then it brings up the next point, which is what do you do with a very high risk patient who's now five years on an AI from diagnosis? Right. Absolutely. Do you continue or stop? Yeah. What do you do? It's kind of in some ways, it's like stopping Herceptin at one year in a patient who has inflammatory breast cancer, you right. know, and you had, you know, positive margins. I have a patient like that as well. I think it's actually a very difficult thing. And what I've done is continue the AI and knowing the optimal duration is, of course, impossible. So somewhere in the seven plus years. And I think that what we do know is that we know what the toxicities are of extending therapy. What we don't know is what is the problem of generating resistance. So there is some interest in trying to test, you know, breaking up therapy, giving time off and restarting because that works in mice. But it's not really clear what that's going to do in humans. So I've heard a change in this in the last year or two because I say a couple of years ago people were just saying, okay, I stopped the AI, period. I don't know whether it's the fact that the NSAVP trial came out and now people realize it's a legitimate thing to look at or what, maybe more sensitivity about relapse. And what I hear people talking about is sort of a multifactorial thing where it's the original risk, how well are they doing on the AI if they're sailing through it or having a lot of problem with arthralgias, patient's age, comorbidity, a bunch of things, you know, kind of like a Peter Rafton type of thing. Now, on this lady, you said she sailed through the tamoxifen. Now, how long has she been on the AI? Now she's been on the AI for three years. And how is she doing symptom-wise, arthralgias, she's doing any pretty problem? well. She was telling me just recently that she was having various bone aches and pains and things like that. And I said, well, you know, those are due to the aromatase inhibitor. She said, really? <laughs> you know, because I think people are willing to attribute the moderate pain. Unfortunately, you know, if you look at MA17 quality of life data, women who were on placebo had increasing joint pains over time. I thought that was sort of the most depressing data from the study. Well, that's interesting. Uh, that, you know, we're all going to get a lot of joint pains continuously as we get older. But the women who were on the letrozole had a little more, but both groups had increasing joint pain. So I think that women know they're having a little stiffness in the morning and this and that. But the stiffness, you know, the rheumatoid arthritis-like symptoms the aromatase inhibitors cause in their mildest form are attributed to just aging. And so it helps women actually 
actually to know that it's not just aging and that the use of anti-inflammatory medications can really help them tolerate it. It's a very small percentage of women who are intolerant, completely intolerant of AIs. So roughly how long do you think you're going to keep her on? You have her on letrozole, I guess? Yes, in five years, I told her so five years. So you give her a course, you know. You She'll always... be out to 12 years at that time. Amazing. <laughs> I said there's a study going on looking at 15 years, so it's okay to keep you on until 12 years because she was off for about, you know, a little under two. There is a trial in Europe called the MINDAC trial right. that's looking at triaging patients based on genomic profiling with the memoprint versus the clinical pathologic criteria we use, including adjuvant online. And in that trial, in order to fund the trial, they had to include some clinical trials that had drugs in them, very expensive studies to do. So what they decided to have as their standard for duration of hormone therapy was seven years. Mm. And that's not really based on any data, but I think that it actually, because it's in that trial, it's been adopted as you know at least one stop time that we could use. And so the patients are randomized to either have some tamoxifen or not. It's fascinating. So do you think that this woman's going to be able to sail through the five years without any major problems? Or you think you're going to yes, ride? I think so. I don't think it'll be a problem. She actually was on an osteoporosis study. So although she only had osteopenia, she's on alendronate. And, you know, it's hard to know whether she needs to be on it or not. You know, you mentioned that other patient who didn't get extended therapy and then unfortunately developed metastatic disease. And I think a lot of times people, and I think this maybe is the reason that so many people take chemo, for example, for minimal benefits, is they want to feel like if they develop a recurrence, they've done everything they possibly could to prevent it. And when you hear about these late recurrences and realize that maybe that could have been avoided, I mean, statistically, you know, probably is a pretty good chance, at least one in three, I would guess, that that could have been avoided. You would think the patient at least should hear about it. If they don't want to take an AI, that's fine. But, you know, that way, if they recur, at least they've heard about it. Are you kind of bringing this up to most of your people on the five to 10 year window? Oh, absolutely. And I think the issue is that we don't have a lot of postmenopausal women anymore who are on five years of tamoxifen. Right. So the patient population are really women who were premenopausal at diagnosis or peri and then are postmenopausal at four or five years. But I have to say that the challenge we get into is what to do with those women who still aren't quite menopausal and are mm. at five years. Right. And that's actually a big challenge because we don't have any data to suggest we should put them into menopause. The women who are very high risk up front who are young. I usually suppress the ovaries anyway, so I don't have as much of an issue in those women. You know, women with multi-node positive breast cancer. You know, a lot of people are doing that in, based on our patterns of care studies, both investigators and docs in practice. A lot of people are doing that. But then you have some people who add in tamoxifen, some add in an AI, some just use ovarian suppression. Of course, this is being looked at in at least one major clinical trial. What do you tend to do? Do you tend to add in tamoxifen with ovarian suppression? Well, we were at you know various pieces of data coming out suggesting maybe patients with HER2 positive disease did better with aromatase inhibitors and then data with patients who had progesterone receptor negativity and all of that information made us very interested in ovarian suppression plus AIs in particular subsets of women. Well, subsequently, both sets of data have been largely turned over. In other words, AIs are better regardless of progesterone receptor status. And that in HER2 status, you know, HER2 positive patients based on Matt Ellis's work, women did actually a little worse than the HER2 
negative patients, regardless of what hormone therapy they got, that didn't appear to be a true advantage necessarily to an AI in that setting. So, you know, although I think that question still remains to be seen, we don't know that there are subsets that benefit. So that brought in some question. And then the other thing that has happened is that we use the GnRH agonist to suppress the ovaries. And then if you start an aromatase inhibitor, some of those women, their ovaries will turn back on again, even though they're on a GnRH agonist. We actually had one woman who was on the TEX trial randomized to ovarian suppression and exemestane recover her menses and had normal estradiol levels. So they actually classify that woman as a treatment failure on the study, which I thought was interesting. And we put her back on tamoxifen, kept her on the ovarian suppression, and her ovaries are suppressed. So what I do now is I use ovarian suppression and tamoxifen. And when a woman has been suppressed for two or three years, you know, kind of using a switching approach, and we want to use an aromatase inhibitor without data, then we use an AI. But it may be that the combination of ovarian suppression and tamoxifen is plenty good enough. You know, it's interesting, both of these situations that I'm asking you to kind of present patients from are situations that people are managed completely differently today than they would be three years ago. Absolutely. It's kind of interesting that so many breast cancer patients in medical oncology practice are getting different therapy today than they would literally two or three years ago. And that brings up her two positive adjuvant setting. I asked you if you could pull out a kind of typical case of where you used adjuvant Herceptin. What have you got? There's a few cases, actually, and it's interesting now. So one is a, this is an adjuvant situation. So this would be a patient who had already had their surgery. We do see a fair number of patients in the neoadjuvant setting because, of course, the way the disease grows. But this is a woman in her 60s, speaks only Mandarin which, of course, is a challenge. I'm not speaking Mandarin much. And she had a four-node positive ERPR negative HER2 strongly overexpressing breast cancer. And so the question was, you know, she came in to see us. What was her family and work situation? So she lives alone, (laughs) speaking only Chinese, and she has sons, but they live in Hong Kong. And so the sons came over for her surgery and to see what was going to go on with treatment, but they couldn't stay because they have businesses and families. And she had one son in California, but it shows you the ethnic differences in various groups, you know, families. But the daughter-in-law and the mother didn't get along, so she can't live with that family. So, <laughs> And they live too far away to sort of transport her back and right. forth. She's not working now. She worked, in fact, was a professional in China, but didn't learn English, came to the United States with one son who moved here and wasn't working. And were you able to connect with her enough? I assume you had some kind of translator to try to get a feel for where she was at about this? Yes, we have a big Asian population, so we did have a translator. And actually, I saw her again today for her fourth cycle of chemotherapy, and we've connected with her very nicely. It helps I have a fellow who speaks Chinese right at the moment, but she appears to really understand why she's doing the treatment. And we had a long conversation about the biology of her, too, translated into Chinese. Wow. And why the treatment was important. And she was very understanding, you know, very hesitant to do treatment, you know. You know, as again, there's a cultural effect there. 
But when she understood the importance of it, you know, she's a very intelligent woman, very highly educated, and really wanted to do the treatment. Now, what specific treatment did she get? Her timing was very good when she presented because the BCIRG trial, of course, had been updated at San Antonio in December. And it does appear that the TCH regimen is as good as an anthracycline-based regimen. So just to clarify for the surgeons, the TCH is docetaxel, carboplatin, and Herceptin. And that was one of the three arms in this BCRG trial. And I guess it was just December 2006 when Dennis Slayman presented these updated results showing that both in that arm with the chemo without anthracycline and Herceptin and in the other arm, which had the anthracycline in it, both of those arms look pretty similar with dramatic drops in recurrence rates. Indeed, because at the first presentation of that trial, it looked like the anthracycline-containing regimen would be better, which fit nicely into all of our preconceived notions because the gene that's the enzyme that's targeted by anthracycline sits right next to her too. So it made a lot of sense that anthracyclines would be better. But then this data suggests that if you just give Herceptin and really effective chemotherapy like docetaxel and carboplatin, that you could overcome the need for anthracyclines. And then the interesting thing from that data set is that the cardiac toxicity from that regimen was the same as giving AC followed by docetaxel without Herceptin. So you eliminated the additional cardiac toxicity caused by giving Herceptin after an anthracycline. And then the NSABP has looked at which women developed heart failure. So what are risk factors for heart failure? And very interesting data that suggests that women who are older than 55 have previous any cardiac, so uh, a lot of hypertension requiring medications, not garden variety, but a lot of hypertension, the ejection fraction at start of treatment, at the end of AC, if it's 55% or below, so 50 to 55%, those women who could stay on study, had a higher risk of heart failure. Now, where did this woman stack up? Any hypertension? She had no hypertension, but she's in her late 60s. She clearly is a woman who has a higher risk of cardiac toxicity based on that data set. And the other... Uh, Could you kind of clarify, though, when you say increased risk, what are the actual numbers you would give to a patient? Well, if you look at the differences in women, overall, the risk of cardiac toxicity might only be in the four plus a little percent. So that would be cardiac toxicity. We're talking about congestive heart failure. Congestive heart failure, clinical congestive heart failure. And so even though the risk is not very high compared to the benefit you're getting with the Herceptin, in women who are at higher risk, that risk could go up to 13%. And so that would be an unacceptable risk. And I think since I have seen completely unpredicted true congestive heart failure that's taken eight months to recover in a woman in her 40s, I think you have to be very cautious. So you saw this woman since December when Slayman presented the data. Interesting. Now, particularly in view of the challenge there in communication, did you actually go into this thing about the heart failure and all this stuff with her? We did. We said, you know, our sons were there too who understood English, but we discussed the fact that the non-anthracycline regimens were newer, little less data, But given her age, that it would be a safer treatment for her. And, of course, they're very interested in safety. 
So that's the regimen she's received. And despite the fact that getting her to take her nausea medicine and doing the things the way we want to has been a challenge, she's done very, very well with her treatment. So she's already now out to her fourth cycle. I guess one of the interesting sort of theoretical advantages of this regimen, the TCH regimen, is the Herceptin gets started right away. Whereas in the other regimens, you have the anthracycline, you don't give the Herceptin, and then you do the taxane Herceptin. So there's a little bit of a delay there. It's true, although indeed, HER2-positive breast cancer is very anthracycline-sensitive. So the data is equivalent because of that. So it doesn't appear to matter that you start the Herceptin a little bit later. I'm kind of curious, too. I mean, again, trying to get a peek into the medical oncology world for the surgeons. How did this woman respond to the whole life with chemotherapy? I assume she lost her hair? She did. How did she react to that? It didn't bother her very much. I think it's interesting because we do see a wide range of ethnicities in our practice that it doesn't seem to run very true to ethnicity concern about hair loss. And I think that because Herceptin is something you can really explain that specifically targets that cancer. So that I haven't had a woman in recent past turn down Herceptin and chemotherapy, even women who have relatively lower stage disease. So for example, if we have women who have smaller tumors, like a 0.8 centimeter hormone receptor negative, but HER2 positive breast cancer, who's relatively young, in that situation, we'll often give four cycles of chemotherapy in a year of Herceptin, where we never would have done such a thing in the past. So, And I haven't had anybody say, I don't want to get that treatment because I'm going to lose my hair or because I'm worried about the treatment. They're more worried about that HER2 positive subset. It's interesting, though, but you know, when you start talking about this, if you start pushing the age up, for example, you take the same exact numbers And instead of this lady being in her 60s, she's in her 80s. I mean, would you consider using trastuzumab without chemotherapy in a patient like that? And I would. We actually had a patient who was in her 70s, late 70s, but had a lot of medical problems, (laughs) enormous number of medical problems. And come from the Philippines, but none of them, you know, bad arthritis and some diabetes and hypertension, but none of them things that were going to make her die in the next probably 10 years. In fact, she's still alive, so that was the case. But if you have an ER negative, HER2 positive breast cancer in particular, and probably for the ER positive group as well, based on current data, the chance that you're going to be dead in five years is much higher. It's not like, you know, do you really need hormone therapy because you're going to live 10 or 15 years anyway and you're already old. In that situation, it's quite different. So in that woman, we gave her actually Taxol alone because her septum, the data wasn't out. And then she went to surgery and then the Herceptin data came out. We gave her a year of Herceptin with that. And then we have had some older women where we've actually used Herceptin alone to treat the cancer and been able to get the women to surgery, actually as neoadjuvant therapy. What does Herceptin bring to the table in terms of quality of life, in terms of side effects? You mentioned the cardiac concerns of a small number of patients. They're going to get the Herceptin during the chemotherapy. Then once the chemotherapy is over, they're going to finish their whole year receiving Herceptin. How do they feel when they're getting Herceptin alone? Any problems? Well, you know, now we can give the Herceptin every three weeks based on the pharmacokinetic data that shows you get the same blood level. And most women do really, really well. Some women say they're a little fatigued when they get the treatment. Some people have sort of aches and pains. It is an antibody. 
I've occasionally had a woman who has a little shortness of breath the day after we give pre-meds to, but I would say on the whole, it's extremely well tolerated. And just saw a woman who we just completed a year of her septin who was already four years out when the data came out, but she had 12 positive lymph nodes, was on an aromatase inhibitor. You know, we don't know if she was cured or not, but I actually polled all my colleagues nationwide and everybody would have given her her septin and she didn't notice it. She never noticed her treatment, so she did extremely well. What about the issue of testing for HER2 and ER? You talked about you know, how important endocrine therapy can be to a patient if they're ER positive, how important trastuzumab can be to a patient who has a HER2 positive tumor, but how well are we doing the job of figuring out who it is that has HER2 positive or ER positive tumors? Well, I think that's actually a really good point because we obviously need tumor tissue and it's important to have adequate tumor tissue to make this assessment. And I have had a number of patients who come in with inadequate tissue sampling, primarily women who got an FNA to make a diagnosis and then got neoadjuvant therapy, had surgery, and nobody rechecked any of the markers, you know, or it didn't really make sense for the cancer that they had or HER2 status, which really hasn't been defined. So if an immunohistochemistry test is done at a low-volume institution, you always want to repeat the IHC or get a FISH test to try and really pin down whether or not the patient has HER2-positive disease. And that's really critical to have that information and to have it as soon as possible in order to help with treatment decisions because you don't want to be treating a woman with Herceptin who doesn't have HER2-positive disease. On the other hand, you certainly wouldn't want to miss giving Herceptin to a patient who has HER2-positive disease. I think, you know, one area that's important for the surgeons in the neoadjuvant setting is whether or not you need to have node information before you treat patients. And I think that the data from the NSABP is very encouraging that the sentinel node is helpful after neoadjuvant chemotherapy in the clinically node-negative patient. We've really moved away from doing node evaluations pre-chemotherapy. You know, you really have to treat based on the biology of the cancer, and I think that it puts a patient through two procedures that aren't really necessary at the moment. What are the situations right now where you consider in a non-protocol setting neoadjuvant therapy in breast cancer? Certainly, if there are protocols, we enroll those patients, but there are lots of people who don't fit into protocol settings. So we treat women who have larger tumors, women who aren't good candidates for breast-conserving surgery, women who have palpable axillary nodes, and of course, women who have skin involvement. So those are the groups of patients we treat. I think one of the things that's been a little bit concerning to us is that there are groups of women who don't respond. And if we could identify those patients and treat them differently, it would be enormously useful. And the group we probably find the most challenging is women who have lobular cancer, where we treat them and their disease melts away on palpable exam and often on imaging, and they've got a breast full of tumor at the time of surgery. It's just a very hard disease to track. So I think that we're going to have to get a lot smarter, and those patients may be much better candidates for neoadjuvant hormonal approach, actually, either with a targeted agent or not. There's going to be a trial looking at an AI with bevacizumab to try and reverse resistance in that setting, and of course other agents, mTOR inhibitors, et cetera, other targeted therapies. But that's really a challenging group of patients for us. How do you approach the patient who, in spite of having neoadjuvant chemotherapy, still has a lot of residual disease at surgery, particularly if they're ER negative where you're not going to have the hormones to follow up? 
That is a big challenge. In fact, I think it's one of the biggest unanswered questions by anything. You know, some we have little bits of answers, but we don't have any answer to that situation. If it's a patient has hormone receptor positive disease, you can sort of go heavily on the hormone therapy. Keep your fingers crossed that they're going to have disease which is hormone sensitive. We have no data to suggest that additional chemotherapy is going to overcome resistance to our best agents. So the ER negative patients are in a very difficult situation. We've been doing a clinical trial with Dana-Farber, Indiana University, and University of North Carolina looking at bevacizumab in that trial population where maybe you could overcome occult residual malignant disease. And now we're going to be combining bevacizumab with capcitabine. But I think that this is a really important study question. There's also interest in looking at those patients with bisphosphonates, with oral tyrosine kinase inhibitors that have anti-angiogenic properties. It's an open question. And so what we'd like to do is always have a clinical trial open for those patients. So basically, you see that the tumor really hasn't responded that well to chemo, so you want to use something different than yes. chemo. Because, you know, if you just give more chemo, my feeling about that, and you know, it's demonstrated in trials, is that basically you're taking the one good quality of lifetime that that patient may have and robbing them of it. Because if you want to give them Zoloter or Gemcitabine or some other drug after they've had surgery, there's no evidence that that's going to help them live longer, make them disease-free for longer.